to Fright Night. everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And thanks for joining us, guys. It is July, it is summer, it is hot, it is steamy, and as we promised last episode, we are talking about two steamy vampire flicks. Now, these films aren't necessarily box office success stories, but they are so beloved within the horror canon. They feel to me like really youthful vampire films. I think any listener who is at approximately our age has a certain sense of nostalgia about these films. And I think new listeners and new horror fans going back to these films will find that they still hold up as really fun vampire flicks. And I think these two films and these two films are, of course, Tom Holland's Fright Night and Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys have not only the nostalgia that Andrea was mentioning, but also such a love for the horror film. And we've talked about this so many times on the podcast of films that we all consider to be horror films, but that the filmmakers are so reticent to call horror. And these films wear that horror badge Proudly. They are proud, card-carrying members of the horror community. And I think that's partially the reason why they are so embraced as great films in the horror community, on top of being really strong films. And they're also oddballs. I think when we get into the production histories of both films, not only are they labors of love, these are films that the filmmakers just really wanted to make with very little studio interference, and they just love the fact that these films are still embraced today. These films have so much in common. They have so much shared thematic and narrative DNA that it just makes sense to pair them together. Now, I think the most obvious piece to piece them together is the fact that they both deal with vampires. Now, vampires are funny and they're weird and they've always struggled to find their footing within the horror genre because they're always being readapted. We've seen this already this year in the Faculty of Horror we talked about. Bram Stoker's Dracula made by Francis Ford Coppola, as well as 30 Days of Night, two vastly different vampire films. And now we're coming to the 80s and What does it mean to make a vampire film? What does it mean to talk about vampires? It's true. The vampire trope has been in horror film as long as there has been horror film, essentially. And insofar as we did talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula, we talked about vampires a little bit in that episode. We didn't really go into the history of vampires. We didn't really make an episode on vampire films per se. So we'll start maybe with a look at the early vampire films. The earliest cinematic vampire movie was The Vampire in 1913, which was directed by Robert G. Vignola, which didn't actually contain vampires, but femme fatales. Femme fatales were also called vamps. And when we discuss later on about the seductive element of the blood sucking and the vampirism, this is as old as vampire mythology is. The supernatural vampire emerged in cinema with Nosferatu in 1922, which was so close to Bram Stoker's Dracula novel that Stoker's estate sued and won. And then Bela Lugosi came into the picture with Dracula and really cemented the character that would become vampire canon with his accent and his sweeping gestures. 
Now, from there, we've got the universal hammer horror depiction of vampires, which is sometimes a little bit campy, sometimes a little bit more serious and sedate. We've got lesbian vampires, which were inspired by Le Fanu's Carmilla. Very, very sexual. Vampires even got into comedy later on with Abbott and Costello. Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers, Love at First Bite. Black exploitation got in on the vampire craze with Blackula. And then we reach the 80s, and this is where we wind up with Fright Night and The Lost Boys. Now, both of these films feature vampires within a uniquely adolescent context. Up till then, vampires were always in the domain of the adult, partly because they were so sexual and mature and fatalistic. But if you think about it, sexuality and teenagerdom go hand in hand. You'll recall the discussion of adolescence from our Battle Royale episode. We discussed how it's an interesting and socially constructed rift between childhood and adulthood, where you've got these powerful hormones and motives, but little actual power over their lives. Now, teenagerdom is also a very heady time for moviegoing since teens can't get into bars yet, and many horror movies in the 1980s were deliberately aimed at this market. And these two movies are no exception. While Fright Night is an unapologetic love letter to teenage horror fans, The Lost Boys presents a more sophisticated teen horror movie, and both films incorporate self-referential horror tropes mixed with comedy, as well as romance, which makes them feel very complete and well-rounded, in my opinion. One of the other things I think that is super notable about these two films is how well-made they are. They look great. They sound great. They have great performances. There's a really strong script behind them. These were not indie films. These were studio films. And the 80s are a really interesting time for horror fans. They're a huge time for horror fans. And in large reason, this is because of John Carpenter's Halloween made in 1978. Huge hit, huge indie hit. And the studios were like, holy shit, we need to actually take horror films for a teen market really seriously now. So the first movement of this that you see is with something like Sean S. Cunningham's Friday the 13th in 1980, made by Paramount. This goes on and on, and then you get the heyday of the slashers, a genre that a lot of us really love. And then you have these kind of smaller anomalies, like Fright Night and like The Lost Boys. Now, the 80s are a really peculiar time to be a teen. I mean, any time is a weird time to be a teen. There are hormones, there are issues, you feel independent, but you're still reliant on your parents. These are things we have talked about. These are things we have all experienced. Now, the 80s to me represent a time that we all started becoming more and more insular. I was born in 85, so I only got a little hint of this, but throughout my teens, I was really happy being on my own. I loved being on my own. In fact, as soon as they could, my parents got me a TV and a little VCR to put in my room, and I would just sit up there and, like, happily watch movies. This was especially great for my mom because I was really getting into horror. She wanted to watch tennis all the time. It was, you know, one of our few big riffs. So she was happy for me to be up there hanging out, doing my own thing. And I did not have the imagination to do anything else, so I literally just sat around and watched movies. The 80s was the time when VHS blew up in popularity, as did Betamax, and that's when these players were starting to enter the household. This is when video stores became a thing. So we were taking mass entertainment that we all had to experience as a collective and then privatizing it a bit. And then, you know, a few decades later, well, 
playing fucking Pokemon on our phones. So we are kind of increasingly becoming more and more individual by the things that are supposedly bringing us together. That's a much bigger theme. That's a much bigger narrative. But I think that it is important to consider when we talk about 80s horror films, specifically these ones, that this was a time that teenagers were able to exist under the roof of the home on their own. They could be very separate from family activities. And as we'll get into when we really get into these films, both of these films feature adolescent protagonists with a single baby boomer mom situation. And that is a generational moment in time where adolescents were really on their own. You have one parent and that parent has to work. So you got to find things to make yourself busy. And furthermore, both of these films have this self-referentiality such that horror fans appear in these films. You've got the horror comic connoisseurs in The Frog Brothers. You've got the horror movie fanatic in Evil Ed. So not only are horror fans consuming this media privately and passionately, they are seeing themselves in these films. And the 80s, I think as we've also mentioned on this podcast before, was a time of consumerism, of consumption, and of Reaganism. It was a highly conservative government that was swinging very conservatively financially as well as socially. So there was a lot of anxiety around the AIDS crisis, which was not really named in any meaningful way for a long time because Reagan just couldn't fucking deal with it. And it's a really sad time and a weird time to look at. Now, Now, it's interesting to me that the horror fans in these films are either the heroes or enable the heroes to succeed, and it's through their consumption of mass media. And again, this was a huge thing at the time. And this was also a time of a lot of sequels and a lot of nostalgia. Currently, in the period we are in right now, in 2016, I see people every day on my social media feeds lamenting, why are they rebooting this? Why is there a sequel to this? Why, 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 why? And this isn't new, guys. This is just a cycle we are in. And you can get on the train and enjoy it, or you can get off and ignore it. But this was something that was happening in the 80s. And there's a film, um, there's a film writer and author by the name of William J. Palmer who really solidified the notion of nostalgia and sequel in the 80s. And his hypothesis was that this trend developed out of a fear of what was currently happening in this conservative government and that it was, you know, seeking a simpler time of like the 50s and the 60s, which were still messed up. But from our vantage point now in the future, in the future of the 80s, that seemed really quaint and it seemed easy and it seemed doable. And I don't know if anyone out there is living in a country that has a really scary potential conservative government coming into power. But I think we are all hearkening back to a time in our childhoods when maybe things could have been different. These are definitely tough times that we're living in. And I think that is so valuable. I'm so glad you brought it up, Alex, because these things are cyclical. And, you know, eventually I have to believe that there are going to be movies that tap into what is happening right now. The terrorism, the fear mongering, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things are going to manifest eventually. But for now, we're just going to remake Ghostbusters and think back to a wonderful time where we wished women could be Ghostbusters. So to start us off, we are going to talk about Fright Night from 1985, written and directed by Tom Holland. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. 
something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. This could be the night of your life. The film centers around 17-year-old Charlie, who believes that a vampire named Jerry Dandridge has moved next to him in a quiet suburban neighborhood. Nobody believes him, naturally, so he turns to his favorite horror movie host, Peter Vincent, who hosts a late-night TV show called Fright Night. Vincent dismisses him initially until Charlie's girlfriend Amy convinces him to accompany them on a visit to Dandridge's house, if only to placate Charlie. When they get there, however, Vincent notices that Dandridge doesn't cast a reflection in a mirror. Convinced, Vincent flees the scene. But by this point, Dandridge knows that Charlie is onto him, and so he attacks Charlie's best friend, Ed, turning him into a vampire. And he also goes after Amy, who bears a striking resemblance to Dandridge's own lost love. After Peter Vincent is attacked by vampire Ed, he agrees to visit the Dandridge house with Charlie to settle the score once and for all. Now, Tom Holland is a name you might recognize from previous Faculty of Horror episodes, such as when we tackled Child's Play a little bit with our episode on children. He has been working in horror forever. He actually left a promising legal career to pursue show business after writing Psycho 2, The Beast Within, and he's also directed The Stranger Within, The Langoliers, Thinner. Now, Holland's initial inspiration for the movie was thinking about What if a teenage horror fan believed a vampire moved in next door? No one would believe him. And he discussed this idea with the head of the story department at Columbia Pictures who helped him flesh it out. Like, where would a kid actually go for help? Vincent Price, probably. And once they had the Peter Vincent character involved, the rest of the story fell into place. However, of course, they weren't able to get Vincent Price. He wasn't taking on horror roles anymore at that time. So the role went to Roddy McDowell, who became longtime friends with Holland. Chris Sarandon, who plays Jerry Dandridge, was also initially apprehensive about making a horror movie, but he was so impressed by the script and the fact that the film really seemed to be a labor of love to Tom Holland, a really self-referential teen horror film that poked fun at the genre without really making fun of it. It's also a really interesting examination of the horror host, the role that that plays in a teenager's consumption of horror. Now, we've talked about VHS, we've talked about the advent of that and the boom of it, but you could also watch scary movies a lot on TV, especially after 10 o'clock. And, you know, decades ago, they would have someone on air, two hosts. The first one was actually Vampira, who had her own show from 1954 to 1955. And it was low rated, and it didn't really go on. But she was the first, and it went on and on. And you had, you know, bigger names like Joe Bob Briggs, and of course, Elvira. (laughs) 
Yes, when you went to the video store, you could have picked a classic like Bambi or Gone with the Wind or Debbie Does Dallas. Gosh, I love that shower scene. But no, you choose Night of the Ghouls. I tell you, the only reason I'd watch this film is if I swallowed poison and needed to induce vomiting, or if they paid me. It's an interesting role to play because I remember watching quite a lot of horror films on television and they're always cut for cable and they're always cut down. A lot of the violence, a lot of the titties are cut out even after 10 p.m. But I didn't have that horror host. And it sounds like this amazing throwback nostalgia thing. Again, we've talked about that a lot already in this episode. But someone to come on, do a skit, talk about it, make fun of it, interact with an unseen audience, and make the experience more personal. So it's no wonder that a character like Charlie would latch on to a character like Peter Vincent, who also conveniently seems to do his show out of the same town that Charlie lives in. One of the other things I think is so interesting about Fright Night as an 80s film is its location, and it's in this very anonymous suburb. It looks like it's fall to me. There are leaves on the ground, and they're kind of in school, but they're also not really in school. But it's these rows of houses, and no one seems that concerned with each other. So the whole film starts with an Alfred Hitchcock rear window slash boy who cried wolf motif. And this is important because the suburbs were an advent of kind of the atomic age. In the lead up to World War II, during World War II, after World War II, military technology was scary. It was really, really scary. And during the Cold War, that was the big threat. The Russians were going to nuke us. That was going to happen, and we all had to be prepared. So part of what the government did, as well as with the overflowing population in major cities, was build these little outposts, these suburbs, where workers could easily commute into a city, but then also leave it at night. So if a major city like New York got hit with a nuke, there would be surrounding pockets of population that might survive and could still continue on and rebuild. So there are these anonymous man-made towns, these homes that aren't quite real, but are where the vast majority of Americana seems to live. That's right. And we talked about suburbia a little bit in our very first episode of this podcast. If you can bear to listen to it, I can't. But when we talked about Halloween, we talked about how Laurie Strode would go running through her suburban neighborhood, screaming bloody murder for help, and no one would so much as crack a window. And I always think it's so interesting when horror movies are placed in suburbia because they feel very safe. But at the same time, the houses are further apart. People are minding their own business. People are increasingly insular. As Alex was saying toward the beginning of this episode, and Fright Night is really no exception. So after you've come home from a long day of work and all you want to do is shut down. You want to shut off. You want to watch TV. You want to do whatever. So you want to lock your doors and not engage. So what happens when a teenage kid thinks he sees a murder? That's what so much of Fright Night is predicated on. The role that Charlie takes is essentially that of a disruptor in this small, sleepy cul-de-sac. And it is up to Jerry the vampire, who sees him through a kind of window exchange, uh, along with a great pair of 80s titties, that he knows that Charlie kind of might know something. And so Jerry takes it upon himself to insert himself into this kid's life and to co-opt it in a lot of ways because Charlie won't play ball. He won't let this death happen around him. And ultimately, what Jerry seems to do is he co-opts two of 
Charlie's closest allies, and that's his best friend, Evil Ed, and his girlfriend, Amy. And I want to talk about what is our notion of evil in this film? Because you have Jerry, who is our quote-unquote big bad in this, and he's a vampire, and he's killed some women, probably a lot more women, because I think they've estimated that he's around 400 years old or so. He's killed a lot of people. But when he gets Ed, he could so easily kill him. He could rip out his throat, done. But he doesn't. Instead, he offers him an alternative. I know what it's like being different. They won't pick on you anymore or beat you up. I'll see to that. All you have to do is take my hand. That scene is so powerful. You know, there's a tear running down Evil Ed's face. The fact that someone has recognized that he is going through something, something that his best friend probably hasn't recognized. And he is being given a way out, an easier way to deal with this. And he takes it. That is such a complicated and truthful moment in the midst of this really fun horror movie. And I think that's part of what makes this film so great. On the other hand, when you deal with Amy, I mean, that's fascinating to me because at the beginning, Charlie's kind of being a dick to her. And he's like, all I hear is no from you. Like, Charlie, calm down. We've been going together almost a year and all I ever hear is, Charlie, stop it. But... She's ready, and then Charlie ignores her. So when Jerry shows up and he has this instant connection with her and their quote-unquote love scene or whatever that is, like, you see actual skin in it. It's sensual. There's a fireplace and music, and he's, like, pretty hot. That's incredible. So he's giving her what she wants. Now, I mentioned a little bit of the production history. Tom Holland picked his dream cast and he really let them go with it. He allowed them to improvise. There were numerous revisions to the script. And Chris Sarandon, being a very classical actor, being a very classy guy, he saw a lot of potential in the script, but he also made an effort to humanize the character of Jerry Dandridge. He was the one who imposed the idea that Amy be reminiscent of his long-lost love, which is a very Dracula idea? Draculatory? I like that one better. In addition, Chris Sarandon was also the one who did a little bit of research into the nature of bats and the idea of fruit bats and that Jerry Dandridge should maybe chomp on an apple now and then as a palate cleanser because, after all, he is part bat. And I think all of those touches and tones and shades that Chris Sarandon brought to the character of Jerry Dandridge complicate our notion of the film. And again, this is my question of what is evil in this film and not just Ed. If Jerry is offering these things that these characters want to them and delivering on them, is he that bad? And is Charlie's kind of quest to subdue the quote unquote evil monster just the conservative America Reaganism coming into play again? Because what always pictures in my mind when I think of this film, it's the juxtaposition between the Jerry and Amy sex scene versus the Charlie and Amy fooling around at the end scene, like fully clothed. They're just kind of writhing on each other. Whereas I'm like, no, Jerry would like, it would be good. It'd be really good. 
I almost feel like Jerry's offering a remedy to this socially constructed adolescence. It's like you really want to fuck, but you don't know how and you're so hung up on it. Well, here's how. You want to have power. You want to embrace who you are, but you don't know how. Here's how. He's offering all this to these kids in these really accessible terms. And I feel like it just really problematizes the social construction of adolescence that we've talked about before. And when you look at Charlie's main ally, once he loses his two closest people, is Peter Vincent, an old British man. And I mean, God, talk about going back to the empire. Like, it's such an interesting moment where he has to go back and they have to subdue the seemingly jump forward that these characters have had. I mean, obviously, they kill evil Ed. But Amy just kind of reverts back. She loses those great extensions and I guess has to take off that really cute white dress and goes back to normal. I found Amy's transformation really interesting because she kind of goes from this very tomboy girl next door. Tom Holland fully says that when he was looking for Amy, he was looking for a girl next door, accessible beauty, and Amanda Beers showed up and she was perfect. And she is a very boyish babe in this film. She rides a scooter. She's, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say that she's strong, but she sure does chirp a lot. She doesn't take a lot of shit. That's right. And yet the vampire version of her is this exaggerated femininity. It's almost like Jerry Dandridge pulled it out of her, that which was repressed, that she was trying to do with Charlie, but Charlie wasn't necessarily ready for it. So I think that when we look at the alternate side of it, when Charlie turns to Peter Vincent for help, Peter Vincent sees this as a money-making opportunity. He sees this as his way to create income because he has just lost his job. And Roddy McDowell is fantastic in this film. And he does such a great job portraying this in very few scenes as he goes from taking Amy's $500 to doing this, to seeing no reflection, to being a coward and being scared and wanting to run away, to showing up and being Charlie's ally. So... Does that mean that good in this film is being selfless, is doing what they think is right, is stopping perpetual murder? I think that's just an interesting question and one that I don't have an answer to. Yeah, I think when I was coming up with a synopsis for this movie, I really simplified it. I really distilled it down to its bare bones. But Peter Vincent, of all the characters, goes through so much. He flips over, he doesn't believe, and then he believes. And he comes around, and then he doesn't come around. And he's bought, but then he believes. And so he really has a lot of hero-developing metamorphosis, where initially it's about the money, as Alex just said, and then after a while it's helping out this kid who's probably schizophrenic, and I don't know what the fuck is wrong with Charlie, but... Here's 500 bucks to help him out to we have to stop this monster because it's the right thing to do. And I love the fact that it's hard to put our finger on where the evil is in this film. I think it makes it that much more compelling. And I love how this film juggles its narratives. When I first saw it, I liked it. And every subsequent time I've watched it, I've grown to appreciate it more because of the artistry and the way all of these narratives are handled. You go from Charlie being our main protagonist to Ed and Amy being your main protagonist to following Peter Vincent to actually kind of liking Jerry a little bit to back to Peter and Charlie. So as you're balancing all of these narratives and as Andrea was just talking about with the construction of female sexuality with Amy, 
I think we're presented with a really interesting portrayal of masculinity. And that's everything from like a metrosexual in Jerry Dandridge all the way to Charlie, which is a much more atypical kind of suppressed masculinity. And it's the notion of a toxic masculinity, being afraid of something that is sexual and viable, and that it's a kind of transgressive sexuality. One of the most fascinating parts, which I've never quite been able to make sense of, but it hasn't bothered me, is like Jerry's roommate, Billy, and they just kind of hang out and they seem pretty close together. And I think there's very much an implied homosexuality there, but he's also really attracted to Amy. And that's fine. Like, Jerry is this representation of fluid sexuality. And it's so amazing. And I think it plays so well. It feels, to me, very natural and very accepting. And like, it's all good. And the more comfortable Jerry seems, the more anxiety Charlie seems to have, which I find really interesting. And it feels like a very youthful masculinity kind of thing. Now, vampires are often portrayed as bisexual because we know that the objective of their seduction is about the kill, the feeding, the hunt. Like, it's not actually a sexual impulse, and so it stands to reason that a vamp would be able to seduce either gender. Now, when it comes to Billy, Jerry and Billy have kind of a Dracula-Renfield thing going on in terms of roles and power dynamics, but it's pretty clear that Billy is under Dandridge's spell in more ways than one. It's very tender and affectionate, and you don't get the sense that Billy expects anything from Jerry the way Renfield did, the way that weird hobo did in 30 Days of Night that we talked about. These people were serving their master in the hopes, in the promise of immortality, but Billy and Jerry just seem like the best of buds, and they're just in it to live out their days together. So as regards the sexual fluidity in this movie, there's a bunch of coincidences that bear mention. Amanda Beers, who plays Amy, went on to play Marcy Darcy on Married with Children, and she had a great career playing a straight woman until she came out in the 90s as a lesbian. Stephen Jeffries, who played Ed, wound up appearing in hardcore gay porn. And Roddy McDowell, who had been a gay icon since before we even knew them as such. So this movie is rife with gay subtext, but what I find most interesting about the heteronormativity of this film is when we get to the end of the film, it wraps up with a nice big bow, mostly because all these sexual ambiguities are resolved. Charlie can finally perform with Amy without the distraction of the hunky guy next door. It's suggested that Ed survives, but he's still somehow a monster. Like, he defies the vampire logic set out in the film because, by rights, the defeat of Jerry Dandridge should have set him free. And yet he's still kind of monstrous, which to me definitely points to this gay subtext. You just get the sense that there's no redemption for Ed. He's still out there and still a monster. I really like the ending of Fright Night. For anyone who hasn't seen it recently or at all, but you should watch it, it's Amy and Charlie fooling around on the bed and Peter Vincent is on and he kind of does like a wink and a nod to Charlie and that gives Charlie the like, ha-ha, to keep fooling around with Amy, I guess. And then the camera slowly pans and it pans and you see these two little red lights flicker like eyes and then they flicker again. And it's creepy. It's lovely and creepy and subtle. But it also implies that any sexuality, any 
unconservative ideas that were apparently stamped out still exist because that is humanity. There are so many gradients to humanity and that you will never have one perfect thing. It's always going to be mired and understood through multiple lenses. So there is that thing always creeping in the background. And I love that it's that subtle hint. But let's talk about the original scripted ending. Now, the original ending was always going to occur a few months after the main events of the film, and it was going to be Charlie and Amy fooling around on a bed, and Fright Night would be on in the background, and it would be Peter Vincent introing something, and he would reference Charlie, is my understanding, and then actually turn into a vampire as some kind of, like, last, like, mwa-ha-ha-ha-ha kind of moment, last, like, fuck you, the sting of a film. And that would have been mind-boggling. I think that would have actually shifted the entire tone of the film and the way we read the film in so many ways. And we're not quite there yet, but I think that's going to come into play a lot more in the next film we talk about. I'm also quite happy with the way Fright Night ended. I know what I just said kind of implied that it was problematic, that everything was resolved except Evil Ed retains this evil. But I almost feel like the vampire threat is quelled, but Evil Ed remains Evil Ed, which almost to me implies that Evil Ed isn't evil. He's just what he is. The ambiguousness of the ending, of course, leaves it wide open to sequels. And sequels there were. Fright Night Part 2 came out in 1988. Yes, Fright Night Part 2. Fright Night Part 2 has to do with Charlie and Peter Vincent again. Both actors reprising their roles and now Charlie is in university and the vampires are striking again and oh no things are at it again. It kind of plays on a lot of the similar themes and it does have its fans. I haven't seen it in quite a long time but it has its fans it has its supporters and I think people really love the actors returning to these parts and you know what if you love those actors as I'm sure a lot of us do it is a fun watch. It's a good time It doesn't sully the memories of the original film, but I know Tom Holland has been more vocal, especially in recent years after the remake about like what could happen if all these surviving actors were still around. And a lot of them are. Waddy McDowell unfortunately passed away in the 90s. But if Chris Sarandon and Stephen Joffreys, who played Evil Ed, and Amanda Beers and William Rangsdale, who played Charlie, they're all around. So like, what could that story look like? And what would that story be? And, you know, if, if Tom Holland wanted to do something, I would totally splash out, you know, some IMAX 3D money on that. All that said, the original Fright Night did see a remake in 2011 starring the late Anton Yelchin, Colin Farrell, and David Tennant. And some of the major changes in this remake include Peter Vincent is crafted as this Las Vegas magician, kind of akin to Chris Angel. Amy is more aggressive and sexually empowered. There's no Billy. There's no love interest for Jerry. Now, Tom Holland is quoted as saying, as regards the remake, kudos to them on every level for their professionalism, but they forgot the humor and the heart. They should have called it something other than Fright Night because it had no more than a passing resemblance to the original. What they did to Jerry Dandridge and Peter Vincent was criminal. I fully agree. As someone who just saw the remake probably about a month ago, 
I was pretty shocked by how much they missed in it. And the greatest indiscretion to me was that they made Jerry Dandridge just like a straight up serial killer. He was like really dark. And I was like, oh, he's a crazy person. You should stay away from him. Versus the Chris Sarandon character, which, again, this speaks to Chris Sarandon as a great actor who cared and invested and brought this bizarre warmth, but also this fearsome menace. And, you know, you never quite knew where you were sitting with Jerry. And I loved that. It's still, I think, one of the better horror performances, better monster performances I've ever seen. And I really like Colin Farrell. I think he can be a great actor. And this just was way off the mark for me. That's literally the only thing I remember from seeing it a month ago. I can't recall very much else, except I didn't really get it. Mm -hmm. Colin Farrell's Jerry Dandridge is very much a shark. He's very much a tunnel vision, singular-minded hunk of beefcake intent on blood. That's it. That's all. But as regards with what we were saying about Tom Holland allowing these characters to improvise and develop, Chris Sarandon put a lot into his Jerry Dandridge in terms of humanizing him. He wanted him to have a love interest. He wanted him to have a funny little quirk of eating an apple. That is not something that Colin Farrell is going to bring to the table. And it's not something that was written for him. So it's not something that's there. That said, while I feel like the film is grossly imperfect and it doesn't nearly capture the heart of the original, I found it a fair attempt. I disagree with Tom Holland saying that it bears no more than a passing resemblance to the original. It's very similar to the original. And if they had tried to call it something else, people would have cried foul that, fuck you, man, that was a Fright Night remake. I enjoyed some of the modernized changes it made, particularly with regard to the Charlie-Ed dynamic, which really touched upon the social pressures of the friends you chose as a teen, as well as bullying, which is a relevant subject right now. We talked about the ways in which masculinity is performed and manhood is performed, and all of this starts at adolescence. Teen boys are supposed to be this and that, and all of a sudden, Lego isn't cool, and you have to be obsessed with chicks, even if you're not. You have to fake it. And here we've got Charlie, who is depicted as a very insecure teenage guy, and his insecurities are so much more overt than they were in the original. And I've always said that I can accept a remake that at least tries to update the original rather than just reshoot it scene for scene. And for what it's worth, I feel like the remake did that. We've got a modern-day TV horror host in the form of this Las Vegas performer. We've got a modern-day adolescent who's so obsessed with his image and how he looks on... He doesn't actually have Facebook in the film, but I could see that being the case. He's got this super-hot girl Girlfriend who has a whole lot of social capital and a lot of his reputation is on he's dating her, he must be fucking her, but he's not fucking her. He's obsessing about fucking her. All of these politics come into play in this film and I wish it drove these points home a bit harder, but they are in there and I think it's a worthy remake. Now, I'm happy to say that the story of Fright Night doesn't end with the Fright Night remake. There is a documentary in the works called You're So Cool, Brewster, The Story of Fright Night. It's currently in post-production after being kick-started by its maker, Chris Griffiths, who is also working on behind-the-scenes documentaries about Hellraiser and RoboCop. So if you love the original film as much as we do, there's plenty more to unpack. As I mentioned, the gay subtext is so omnipresent in online analysis 
analyses of these films, and I encourage you to seek them out because people are talking about them way better than we ever could. So our next film, Joel Schumacher's *The Lost Boys*, comes a couple years later in 1987 versus *Fright Nights* 1985, and it's. A very similar beast, but it's also an entirely different beast, and one that I am really excited to talk about because of how transgressive I think it is. So this is the Lost Boys. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. So where are you? The flying nun! I'm your brother, Sammy. Help me! Stay back! Stay back! Get yourself a good sharp stick. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Newly divorced Lucy moves with her sons to the small California town of Santa Carla where her kooky father lives. The boys, Michael the Elder and Sam the Younger, are close but quickly diverge as they settle into town. Sam befriends the Frog Brothers who give him a comic book warning him about vampires. Meanwhile, Michael falls in with a local gang who are revealed to be vampires, who slowly begin to turn Michael into one of them. Lucy finds work at a local video store and begins to date its owner, Max. Sam soon catches on to Michael's transformation and enlists the Frog Brothers to help them. The Frogs inform Sam that if they can kill the head vampire, Michael will return to normal. Initially, they suspect Max, but he passes their test, so they focus on the gang led by David. When Sam and Michael are left on their own, they, along with the Frog Brothers, arm themselves with holy water, garlic, and the like. They battle the vampire gang. Max and Lucy return home, and it is revealed that Max is indeed the head vampire, who ultimately is looking to turn Lucy into a vampire so his lost boys will have a maternal figure. Their grandfather saves the day by driving through the side of the house, killing Max and returning Michael and the other half-vampires back to their human form. The film ends with the boy's grandfather casually remarking that the thing he could never stomach about living in Santa Carla is all the damn vampires. Now, this film was directed by Joel Schumacher, and Joel Schumacher took a lot of risks with this movie. He spent a lot of sleepless nights wondering if he was flushing his fledgling career down the toilet. And part of that was the tweaks that he made to the vampire mythology, such as these pretty faces that turned ugly when hunting or threatened. This was something that was taken up with Buffy later on and appears as a pretty common vampire trope nowadays. But at the time, vampires were so sacrosanct that the idea of tweaking the mythology was a very scary thing. 
Additionally, the early drafts of this film had the Frog Brothers as the heroes, two chubby eight-year-old Cub Scouts who take on eighth-grade vampires. It was very G-rated and very young, in the vein of the highly successful Goonies adventure movie. Now, Schumacher hated that idea, but he was really intrigued by the idea of Peter Pan-esque young vagabonds, and he wanted them edgier. So Warner Brothers gave him the go-ahead to hire a writer, Jeffrey Bohm, to tweak the script. Ultimately, what he accomplished with The Lost Boys was he made vampires supremely cool. They weren't especially wealthy or erudite. They were this kind of raw, edgy cool that only the adolescent can pull off. And this aesthetic hearkened outsider carny culture that was so much grittier than had previously been associated with 1980s movies. And on the surface, it, it almost seems like two young boys get caught up with the wrong people and the hero, Michael has to rescue the princess, Star, from the villains, who are the vampires, with the help of his little brother and his wacky comedic sidekicks. However, when you look at it more closely, there's a lot more going on. One of the most important things to the discussion of The Lost Boys is its setting, Santa Carla, which has been really popularized by different poster artists in depicting this film through their different variants of illustrating this film. You can find many examples online, but I think its setting is quite different than what we were just talking about with Fright Night. It's a beachside town. There's a big boardwalk with lots of attractions, roller coasters, things like that. But it's very clear that this is kind of a summertime operation, even in California. So you get the sense that after the summer season, it shuts down for probably about six months over the quote-unquote winter in California. So everything kind of goes quiet, and people probably struggle for work, which is the case in a lot of seaside or oceanside towns throughout North America and Europe. This leads to a lot of the transient nature of this film. The fact that there are a lot of anonymous crowds and that these crowds are filled with young people. There are all these young people sifting through this town and these boardwalks on these hot summer nights and that they can pass this huge board which has all these missing person signs. Now, the majority of these signs appear to be for teenagers or children or young people, essentially. There are a couple, like one of the first people to get attacked is an older police officer. So his is like the first that we see get tacked up, but it's filled with these missing anonymous children. The fact that there is this quote unquote lost generation that we continue to lose through these acts. That's right. And I feel that transient nature comes through so strongly in this film in a variety of different ways, most notably the way these teenagers look. They have a timeless punk look. It's not trendy. It's not 80s. It's not biker. It's gypsy fashion with lots of layers and textures. Michael, on the other hand, wears a really cliche leather jacket in an attempt to appear edgier than he is. Like he's conspicuously a more insecure teen than these other teens who are rocking their crazy textiles and whatnot. And that gypsy fashion, gypsy today is a pejorative term for the Romani, a nomadic people who started appearing in Europe in the 14th century. Now, the gypsies have a tremendous history of persecution. Their populations were controlled, sometimes forcibly removed or annexed, or they were branded or downright executed if discovered. A large number of them were executed in World War II by the Nazis, and even after 1945, Czechoslovakia sterilized their women to keep their population controlled. 
What's funny about the gypsies to me is that their religion and customs vary greatly because they were historically very receptive to the norms of their environment. They would adopt tenets of Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, what have you, depending on where they were. The irony is that they're ghettoized for being outside of society, for staunchly keeping to their own strict standards of purity and the importance of the extended familial ties and so on. They're often associated with another nomadic culture, that of the traveling circus crowd, or again, more pejoratively, the carnies, like the gypsy woman with the crystal ball was a form of a witch, essentially. And this trope we saw back in year one of the podcast with Drag Me to Hell. In the case of the Lost Boys, it really makes stylistic sense that it's a fashion statement that's simultaneously timeless and outlaw. And plus, as Alex was just saying, the fact that these kids lurk the boardwalk at Santa Carla. They fit right in as the outsiders that they are. One of the first things that Michael, who is kind of our de facto lead character, he's the older brother. He's the one going through the transformation, discovering his kind of sexuality. He's really attracted to this female star who turns out to be a vampire, leading him into the gang. He's kind of our way into this whole story. What's interesting about him is one of his first acts in the film is once he gets to Santa Carla is to go to the boardwalk and start adorning himself with different items. He looks at getting his ear pierced and he looks at a leather jacket which he ultimately buys. And those are the things that when you're a teen you slowly start to amass. You amass those things that tell other people who you are. Those are your signifiers, those are your emblems, those are the ways you show your interest to other people around you. This is you know, incredibly predominant, particularly in goth culture. When you go to high school for the first time and you see the goth kids, you can be like, oh, those are my people or those are not my people. For me, when I was starting in high school, one of my big things was to get like a skinny scarf because I was kind of preppy, but I was also kind of boho. So we all choose these markers of ourselves to pick ourselves and to make ourselves known to others like us. So the fact that Michael is choosing those elements and then is immediately attracted to Star, who seems to kind of reciprocate, is really interesting to me. And it puts him a bit at odds, but also in line with the rest of the Lost Boys, particularly David, played by Keith or Sutherland, who is so iconic in this role and probably the most iconic element of this film that you think this film is about gangs and like badasses bad boys doing bad things but it's kind of not That's right. I love coming-of-age films where you get to see your protagonist constructing themselves in the way that we've all constructed ourselves. It's very grounding and it's very humanizing and I loved that about The Lost Boys. Now, as regards so many missing kids in Santa Carla, in the 1980s, single moms had become a lot more commonplace. And there was a period of transition where a single parent had to work and had to leave their children on their own, as we mentioned earlier on. Now, in the case of the Emersons, believe it or not, that's their last name. I didn't actually pick that out of the film. I found it elsewhere. In the case of the Emerson, Sam escapes into comic books and Michael escapes into dirt biking. But when they get to Santa Carla, however, they encounter the darker side of each with Sam falling in with the Frog Brothers through comic books and Michael joining up with the vampires. 
Now, as regards this film being titled The Lost Boys, there's an obvious allegory to Peter Pan. In Peter Pan, the Lost Boys were the kids who refused to grow up and led their own society according to their own youthful ideals. And similarly, we've got David with this vampire gang having received the gift of immortality as angsty teens. And so they remain angsty teens with immature pranks and daredevilry and scary initiation rituals to hate and new recruits and all the stuff that goes with that. Yeah, the Lost Boys obviously stem from J.M. Barry's story, Peter Pan, which has since been translated into theater, musicals, a Disney movie, weird, kind of terrible movie with Johnny Depp. And these are a kind of really big marker. And this is what forms the framework to the Lost Boys. So the Lost Boys were these boys in Never Neverland when Wendy Darling and her siblings flew over there with Peter Pan. These were the boys who were kind of left. They got lost by their parents and they wound up in Neverland and they were just going to live their best lives, being young boys, having fun, doing whatever the fuck they wanted. The only thing they had to contend with was the evil Captain Hook, who had this ticking crocodile following him. And it's interesting. I mean, that story is fascinating on a multitude of levels. But in as much as Wendy kind of performs this mothering act and she takes care of them and she loves them and she rationalizes them a bit, she takes them all down a notch and orders them. And then Peter Pan fights Captain Hook, frees the Lost Boys, who ostensibly all go back to their parents despite what Steven Spielberg and Hook might tell you. But Peter Pan has so much darkness, and I loved that this film took it on itself to really examine what that meant. What does immortality mean in a contemporary Western culture? Vampirism is pretty much at the forefront. And I love the way this film in particular explores the notions of youthfulness and immortality. Because the Lost Boys, this young vampire gang, they're almost their hotness, like their peak hotness when they get turned. Whereas the head vampire, the most evil of them all, is Max, the owner of this store who's trying to date Lucy, who is also Mr. Gilmore from the Gilmore Girls. But I love that there is this fetishization of youth and that it's always in flux and that you can evolve it. If you're always going to be like between 18 and 21, then what will you look like? How will that look evolve? How will it adapt to every situation? And at the same time, how does an older person deal with being immortal? Like they're always kind of going to be a fuddy-duddy. So I like that this film plays with our expectations. Like, we always expect the vampire to be hot and sexy. Whereas, you know, Lucy, who is the mom in this, is seeking love. She seeks acceptance, and she wants to be the best mother she can for her boys, but she also wants to take care of herself and find a job and maybe date a nice man. And I love that the film kind of plays with all of those divergent but intersecting wants and needs. It's true. There are several age groups that are engaging with sexuality in this movie. There's Michael and Star, obviously, at the forefront, but there's also Lucy and Max. And then there's also Grandpa with the widow Johnson. All of these are occurring outside the normative dating slash marriage slash courtship boundaries that are ascribed to Western life. And I thought that was really interesting. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that. 
I'd like to take things back to Lucy, because as you were talking about the Lost Boys needing a den mother in Wendy, so too do these Lost Boys need a den mother in Lucy, and that's something that's articulated explicitly by Max toward the end of the film when he says he was trying to court her to be a mother to these boys. David and my boys misbehaved. I told you, boys need a mother. I recently read an article that really damned Lucy as a terrible and narcissistic mother. It condemned her for leaving her kids behind to look for a job and or a boyfriend. But I didn't get that at all. Like the job, yes, because it's necessary for survival. And the romance, to me, really seemed incidental. The article also bashed her for not listening to Sam's concerns about Michael being a vampire, which I thought was just ludicrous because, as I recall... Lucy literally races out of the middle of a dinner date, only to be met with a giant mess in the kitchen and to be told her son was just fucking around. You know, it's not fair. I would like to have a personal life, too. It's a really interesting criticism. I think I read that same article of Lucy, and I thought it was a really interesting connection because you can also read Lucy as well as Grandpa in this film as a defiant part of the hippie culture, which was dying out in the 80s. That kind of, you know, I just want to be friends with my kids and I want to treat them with respect and I hope that they'll do the right thing. And the fact that Grandpa is living in this like small town, he's like doing his own thing and it's very hippie dippy. I thought it was so interesting to parlay that into the 80s because in the 80s, there was so much concern about the hippie culture. There was so much suspicion around it, particularly in California because of things like Charles Manson, also other cults which came of age around the 60s and 70s like Children of God. These were really scary things which, you know, a kind-hearted or open-minded person could be subsumed into, that you could be taken away from a regular quote-unquote culture and deviate into something completely outside of the norm to facilitate someone else's wants and needs. And I feel like this was a Lucy trying to make good on some of, you know, maybe her ideals or indiscretions of her past and trying to be that person that the 80s demanded of everyone. Okay, she was a single mom, but she was going to work. And if she could find a nice guy to be her boyfriend, then okay, let's try that. But she was definitely her own person. She was trying. Well, that's right. I found Lucy to be so incredibly lovable in this film. And there's an interesting conversation between her and her father where he remarks that she's unique in that she didn't improve her situation by getting divorced. Lucy, you're the only woman I ever knew didn't improve her situation by getting divorced. Now, we as an audience don't get to know much about the divorce other than that Lucy's ex seems to be something of a yuppie, which is again kind of the contrary to hippie term. But Lucy doesn't seem like a moron. And for me, for her to relocate her family to live in a violent tourist city with her weird old dad makes me think that the marriage must have been really fucking bad for her and that she possesses a great deal of courage and strength to make this move. Throughout the film, Grandpa represents these really antiquated notions, which resonates most strongly at the very end when he gets this parting line that's kind of the final gut punch of the film. Now, once again, as with Fright Night, as with every vampire movie, I think, The Lost Boys contains a strong gay subtext. And when I see that part, all I can think of is the random 
unintentionally racist things my grandparents and my older family members will just blurt. And (laughs) the fact that they all look at him just incredulous, like you knew about this all along. I feel like that's the intended jab of the line. But at the same time, when I see that, all I can see is my racist grandmother referring to Brazil nuts or something like that. So what I was alluding to in our Fright Night discussion about this being a truly subversive film is that I think it is absolutely fascinating that suspicion is cast all around. Obviously, we know the big threat is David and his vampire gang with their mullets because those are upsetting. But what we have to ultimately deal with is a white, patriarchal, business-owning entrepreneur, straight, hetero guy inflicting pain and violence upon this small town without any regard for life. It's horrifying when he is revealed because he is the first to be suspected, but he reveals later on that he was able to counteract the garlic and the holy water, whatever they were doing to him at the dinner, because he was invited into their home. They hate garlic, don't you? No, I like garlic. It's just a little much. Raw garlic. And to me, this is why The Lost Boys is a truly subversive film because it's not ingratiating itself into the patriarchy in a kind of complicated way that Fright Night does. It's actually saying, like, these are the fuckers we have to be wary of. They are up to no good. They are doing something. Something is wrong with the status quo. And this is how these children go missing. This is how everything falls apart underneath them. So it's up to destroying the kind of patriarchal white cis male figure that frees so many other characters. I find it so interesting that both the films that we're talking about today feature teenage boys who live with single moms while facing the threat of vampirism. And both films use the classic vampire trope of needing to be explicitly invited into someone's home before a vampire can enter. In Fright Night, the mom makes the invitation, but in The Lost Boys, Max explicitly states that Michael is the man of the house and the invitation must come from him. You're the man of the house? And I'm not coming in until you invite me. You're invited. Thanks very much. Not his mom, not his grandfather, to whom the house belongs. And I feel like that really situates why this film is called The Lost Boys. It is about this misplaced masculinity, this power that this nomadic vampire monstrous group must exert in this transient town of Santa Carla. And while the vampire gang is playing that version of masculinity, I think you also have the Frog Brothers playing another version of that masculinity because one of their famous lines and the things that they say they're about is truth, justice, and the American way. And what is the American way? In this film, it's depicted as vigilantism, paranoia, and a fear of the other. And I mean, gosh, what's more American than that? The Frog Brothers exude a very military, Reagan-esque heteronormativity. However, I feel like all the other characters in the film experience this coming of age as they see themselves as rescuing Star and Laddie and Sam, like these real-life action heroes. And then you've got the Frog Brothers going on into the sequel of the film as being the heroes, as those who are going to right this heteronormative wrong that's plaguing the USA. 
Well, I think for me it's interesting when you know you look at the Frog Brothers and the fact that they actually become secondary characters. They're able to provide knowledge to Sam and Michael, but they are essentially just assisting them. It is up to them, like Sam and Michael, to make those final battles happen in any meaningful way. And I'd like to think that the Frog Brothers also come of age because they realize not everything is so clear cut and black and white. Like you can't kill every vampire because then you can kill innocent people. People like Star or Laddie or Michael, who are desperately fighting for their humanity, and I like that the film complicates that. And I know that there are sequels and comic books that deal with the Frog Brothers, but I wonder at what cost, like what levels them out. I haven't had the opportunity to read them, but. I hope that they constantly complicate that because the American way means something different, almost whatever state you are in. And I like to think, because I'm half American, that it's a progressive thing and not a regressive element. I feel like it bears mentioning that the big gay elephant in the room is that Sam and Michael exhibit very sexually fluid characteristics. As regards Sam, he's a very snazzy dresser, and he happens to have a very sexy poster of Rob Lowe on his wall, as well as Molly Ringwald. He's fully engrossed in the greased-up sax guy's performance while Michael is scanning for lady babes. As regards Michael and Star, Michael has designs on Star as a love interest right away, but you can't deny that he becomes more infatuated with David in the end. Michael was supposed to be Star's first kill, but David changes his mind about that. Now, David's teasing of Michael back at the lair borders on flirtatious, right down to the idea of Michael drinking one of David's bodily fluids. There's almost an implication that David is seducing these lost boys into his homosexual lifestyle using Star and Laddie as a sort of nuclear family bait. Like Star plays the role of David's girlfriend and is off limits to the other vampires in the crew, but they really don't seem especially interested in her or any other women they encounter, including the surf punks that they feast on at the bonfire. Now, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think the idea of the vampires as metaphor for homosexuality is really on the nose. It's a really obvious metaphor that can be applied to just about any vampire film. But this film does complicate that in that these are kids. Michael and Sam are at varying stages of adolescence and at varying stages of discovering themselves and discovering what it is they want. And perhaps it is only now that they're in an environment where these options are even possible. So it does make for an interesting discussion within that rhetoric. I agree 100%. I mean, sexuality is at the forefront, particularly of The Lost Boys, but both of these films. But, I mean, wasn't David one of your first crushes, Andrea? I think he is forever going to be associated with me because of an interview that I did with the Good Trash Genre cast where I was asked what my first cinematic crush was. And, hey, man, it was David from The Lost Boys. He was the ultimate bad boy. He was so beautiful and enigmatic to me. And I think if you realize where I'm coming from, where I grew up with a very cloistered, overprotective Italian family, and I loved horror movies. And when I grew up, I did 
absolutely everything I wanted all at the same time. I got tons of tattoos and I started playing roller derby and I started playing guitar and it was everything at once because all of this was repressed throughout my entire adolescence. So I do have a special soft spot for this movie as regards David as the ultimate bad boy. And it wasn't even sexual because he's not a sexual guy. He doesn't make a single sexual move in this movie. But still, he represented that utter and total countercultural freedom that I so craved. He's absolutely like the hand that sticks out to you in the night and says, like, come with me. Not if you want to live. That's another movie. But if you want to, like, have a badass fucking time, go with David. FYI, I did the same interview on a separate episode, and my answer was Paul Rudd in Clueless. Yeah. And perhaps now we've arrived at precisely the seed of why these films are so enduring and so influential, why they're able to tap into any adolescent's hopes and dreams and insecurities and anxieties. They offer that jumping off point, that point when you are ready to leave the family nest and try it on your own. These are the films that, in horror lexicon, I think really fully realized, especially from a male perspective, what it is to be on your own and to live and to try and to make mistakes. And I think there's a lot of really exciting ideas in it. Some of them are aggressive, some of them are progressive, but they offer a view of the future. And I think that is what's really exciting about them. So to wrap up, I do hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was a fun journey down memory lane into your own adolescence as it is and your own adolescence as it is with horror because for us horror fans, it's all tied together. Horror movies inform the way we live and vice versa. And so that's part of why these movies are very special to me, part of why this episode is very special to me, why I'm so glad that we tackled it on a hot July in 2016. And for everything that's coming up, obviously, we're going to take August off again. This is our yearly sabbatical. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know this is how we roll. But we will still be active on social media. So if you haven't already followed us, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We also have a Reddit thread. And so we'll be on there posting. If you have questions or comments or concerns, you can get us there and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. For your September homework, well... We have been hinting about it, I think, the last couple months. We have been asked about it for even longer than that. So we're going to finally talk about one of my favorite topics, and I think one of Andrea's, too. We're going to talk about New French Extremity. There's so many things. It's almost like I wrote a whole fucking book about it. But we decided on two films. We decided on one that we have been asked about maybe more than any other film, which is Pascal Laguerre's Martyrs. And then another film, which I talk about in my book, that Andrea and I were both fans of prior to my book, because there was a time before that. And that is Fabrice Duwells's Calvaire. That's maybe a lesser known film to a lot of you, but... Holy shit, do I love that movie. I think it's weird and crazy and inventive and awesome and complicated. And I'm really, really excited to talk about that on this podcast. I love both of those movies so hard. And I think we always want to choose a bombshell to drop for September because we know it sucks. You're waiting for a podcast. (laughs) I've been there with podcasts that I love when they say they're taking an extra week. I'm freaking the fuck out. And here we are taking an extra month. And I know that kind of sucks. But do your homework. 
Watch these movies. Start thinking about them because it'll just make our discussion in September that much better. And enjoy your summer, and we'll be back in the fall before you know it. So until next time, office hours are closed. (laughs) 